Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the morning services. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. Well, morning, everyone. We are concluding today uh, our three-part series looking at the book of Jonah. Uh, And in a few minutes' time, Celia is going to be reading to us. But uh, before that... Uh, I just want to uh, ask you some questions. So, question number one. It's it's one question with four parts. So the question is, what do these four sentences have in common? So, sentence one. Was it a cat I saw? Sentence two. A nut for a jar of tuna. Sentence three. Never odd, or even. And sentence number four, a biblical one, because that's just the way I roll. Madam in Eden, I'm Adam. Can you work out what links those four sentences? If you can, feel free to bung it uh, in the chat bar. Uh, But for now, we're going to have Celia reading to us. So today we're going to be reading from chapters 3 and 4. So we're going to do it in two sections. So Celia is now going to read us uh, chapter 3. Celia, over to you. Today's reading comes from Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Thank you, Celia. Uh, By the way, a couple of weeks ago, we had Priya reading to us from uh, Mumbai. Uh, Celia couldn't get quite that far, but she has made it all the way to Cumbria. uh, Cumbria? Cumbria. So that's where where our reading comes from uh, today. 
Now then, here we are at the beginning of chapter three. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the talks uh, one and two in this little mini-series, I do recommend it because this book that we're reading, the book of Jonah, is so incredible, has so much to offer, and perhaps so much to offer in particular at this time that we are living in now. So a brief recap, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh. Jonah ran away from God, but soon discovered that he couldn't hide, even in the bottom of a ship out on the ocean. He ends up uh, uh, being thrown overboard into the deeps, and we get this idiomatic long journey uh, that Jonah takes, where uh, he plunges right down to the very depth of despair. But there somehow he finds the strength to call on God, and God answers his call. Jonah is, as it were, rebirthed back up onto the beach by virtue of being vomited up by a big fish. And here we arrive at the beginning of chapter 3, which is almost an echo of the first words of chapter 1. So here we get, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And I love that. I think those words speak volumes. We believe in a God of the second chance and indeed the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance. We believe in a God of the parable of the prodigal son, who's always there waiting with arms open wide as soon as we turn to him. Though we give up on him, God never gives up on us. Though we might run out on him, God never runs out on us. Though we might abandon our calling, God never abandons our calling. He is the God of the second chance. And so it may be for you today that actually you acknowledge that you have turned away from God. Well, do not despair, because there is always a way back to him and to the things that he is calling us to. Now, obviously, when we turn away from God, when we make decisions that go against the things he's calling us to, that does take us away from him and away from our calling. And we can't go back. We can't go back to where we began. So who knows what would have happened to Jonah had he uh, obeyed God's call in the first instance. We can't go back to where we were. There are consequences uh, when we don't pursue God's call in our lives. And yet there is always a way back to him. I don't know if this is helpful, but the way I often think about this is if we think about uh, our decisions as kind of like a web, you know, a web of decisions that we make. But maybe there's like a central strand that comes up the middle, which is God's calling on our life. Each decision we make takes us away from that. Uh, but there's always a way back. We can't go back to the bottom of that, strand, that central strand to start again, but there's always a way back into it. So no matter how far we've run away from God, no matter how much we've given up on him, actually each time we turn to him, there is always a way back to his calling on our lives. That, I think, is a great encouragement. And that encouragement continues. So Jonah, this time, obeys God's call, and he goes to Nineveh. But in all honesty, the job he does there seems to me to be a pretty pathetic one. I mean, let's take this sermon that he preaches to the people of Nineveh. So it's five words long. That's the full extent of his sermon. Now, before any of you smart Alex look at the text and say to me, actually, I think you'll find there's eight words here. Well, I'm talking about the original Hebrew, so who's the smart Alec now? Uh, and in the original Hebrew, I mean, it's literally just five words. I suppose if you're being generous to Jonah, you might say, well, at least he's got the idea of brevity, and perhaps there's one or two other preachers who might learn a thing or two from that. But this is so short, it's absurd. 
So in the English he says, um, uh, so 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention why Nineveh will be overthrown or how Nineveh will be overthrown. I mean, there's nothing here for people to get their teeth into. It's a pathetic little sermon. To make things worse, it's also actually pretty ambiguous. That last word, overthrown, has two possible meanings which, have, which are polar opposites from one another. Now, I'm having a bit of a go at Jonah here. Actually, this, this word overthrown is probably just a bit of absolute genius by the writer who, if you've been listening to the last couple of talks, you'll know uh, is just a stunning author. Every word precisely in place. This author is definitely more Salman Rushdie than Geoffrey Archer. He knows exactly what he's doing. And here, he gives us this word overthrown, which has two possible meanings. So literally, overthrown translates as overturned. And that word could mean overturned as in destroyed, broken down, or it can mean turned over, as in turned over a new leaf, changed or transformed for the better. So perhaps the author of Jonah here is giving us a little sneak preview or a little bit of suspense maybe creating in terms of, well, will they repent or will the city be overthrown? Either way, Jonah's sermon equates to 40 more days and Nineveh will either be destroyed or the people will turn over a new leaf and be changed and transformed for the better. I suppose, to be fair to him, he's right. One of those two things will happen. It's just that he's giving himself quite a large margin for error. So his sermon is not all that. In fact, I'm going to go so far to say it's one of the worst sermons ever preached in the history of mankind. And I've got seven in the top ten, so I know what I'm talking about in this regard. On top of that, uh, we have this idea that Nineveh is a big city. So again, idiomatically, we've got this three days. uh, That's how long it takes to cross uh, Nineveh. Jonah's only done one of those, so he hasn't even completed the job. He's he's just a part way into it before God somehow uses what Jonah is offering magnificently. And therein lies the second part of this encouragement. Jonah's offering was pathetic. And yet God used it extraordinarily for the good that he wanted to achieve. I wonder how much you think you have to offer right now. I suspect that for many of us, we don't think we've got that much to offer. I know from talking with people that actually it's hard enough just to keep going. We're just about keeping our head above the waves as we spoke about in that song, Oceans, that Stu led us in earlier. We're just about managing. It's hard to think that we've got anything to offer. Maybe we're feeling so tired, fatigued, or exhausted that we just don't know what we have left to give. Maybe we're feeling so lonely or sad or dispirited we don't really know what we have to offer. Maybe we're feeling so faithless or hopeless that we don't know what we have to offer. Well, the amazing news is that even if all we have to offer is the tiniest little bit, God is able to transform that by 10, 20, 100-fold into something amazing. And all of us do have that tiniest bit to offer. Maybe right now we we can't uh, just spend loads and loads of time with someone who needs it. But perhaps we can offer a, a kind smile or a gentle word. 
Maybe right now we don't quite have the energy to, to go and spend time on the streets of Croydon working with homeless people. But maybe we can at this moment just uh, offer a bit of money to a charity that are working in that area. Maybe right now our faith feels so tiny, but we can muster up just enough to read a psalm of praise. Whatever it is that we have to offer, even if it feels incredibly paltry, God is able to use it for his glory. That's what he does with Jonah. Jonah doesn't have very much to offer, and yet God does extraordinary things with it. So however you're feeling right now, even if all you have is a poultry offering, and by the way, I'm spelling that P-A-L-T-R-Y, not P-O-U-L-T-R-Y, I'm not talking about chicken sacrifice here. However paltry the offering that we have to offer is, God can use it extraordinarily for his glory. And so that's what he does here in Nineveh. Uh, Amazingly, despite Jonah's best efforts, uh, the people of Nineveh, uh, en masse, repent of their sins and turn to God. It's absolutely incredible. To make his point, the the author here again uses another bit of this humorous hyperbole that we've grown to expect from him. So it's not just the people uh, who repent and who fast and wear sackcloth and ashes. The animals of the city get in on the act too. It's not just the king uh, who is kind of in the dust pleading to God for forgiveness. But, you know, the cows are at it too. And even little Jimmy's pet rabbit is wearing a spot of burlap. This This is a humorous hyperbole image. And yet it is one that is incredibly profound. It speaks to the fact that this whole city has really got it. They've really understood what's going on here. They've realized that the way they've been living their lives is not the way that they should be living their lives. And they turn to God. I wonder if there's something that we can learn from that about the way that we confess our sins, about the way that we choose to repent. There's no point coming to God with half-baked repentance. Actually, what he wants is for our hearts to be transformed. He wants us to be truly aware of the ways that we fall short, and all of us do, in order that we might receive his forgiveness and that our lives might be transformed that next step, that next bit more into his likeness. Another thing we see here uh, is that the reason that the people uh, uh, repented was not in the first place in order to get something back from God, his forgiveness. Actually, they do it because they know it's the right thing to do. We can see that because the king in his edict says, who knows, maybe God will relent. So do you see the distinction there? It's not, I'm going to repent so that God will definitely forgive me. It's rather, I know that what I've done is wrong, so I'm going to repent. And then who knows, maybe God will relent. Now look, we know that when we come to God with true hearts, uh, uh, praying for forgiveness, that he always pours it out upon us. But our first port of call in the way we think about it is to be the contrition that comes from knowing that we've fallen short. The result of that is that God pours his forgiveness out. I want to take a brief little detour here with this, word, this phrase, who knows. So we're moving away here from thinking about how this personally affects us and seeing something of, the, of a deeper theological uh, truth that is being spoken here. 
So when the original readers or listeners of Jonah, a few hundred years before Christ, will have heard that phrase, who knows, they would immediately in their mind's eye have been taken back to another very famous who knows in their history. It's a who knows that is spoken by King David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it's actually a tragic, heartbreaking, and also quite confusing story. So David has... Uh, had an affair with Bathsheba, and then she's, he's arranged for her husband to be murdered. His, de- his behavior is despicable, disgusting, and depraved. The prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him, and David finally sees the error of his ways. And part of what the prophet Nathan says to David is that the child that was conceived between David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba will die. Now David repents of his sins, but then he begins to plead to God. He fasts and he puts on sackcloth and ashes in exactly the same way that the people of Nineveh do. And he says, when people ask him, why are you doing this? He says, who knows? Maybe God will relent and save the child. Now, tragically in that story, the child dies. There are all sorts of theological questions and ramifications that that brings up that we simply don't have time to go into now. But for us, reading the book of Jonah, what we need to know is that people listening to this would would immediately have this kind of, this balance they've got going on. They see on the one hand, David, the king of Israel. On the other hand, the king of Nineveh, a pagan, an outsider. Both of them repent of their sins. Both of them fast, both of them wear sackcloth and ashes, and both of them say, who knows, maybe God will relent. Well, for your average Jew at the time, it would be really obvious who God, even if God's going to pour his love out on one of them, really obvious which one that's going to be, of course it's going to be the king of Israel, because he's a Jew, he's an insider, he's part of God's people. Actually, what we get is God pouring his love out on the outsider, on the pagan, on the non-Jew. And this is a really important step in the journey that the Jewish people are going on about understanding something about the depth and breadth of God's love, which is fulfilled uh, in Jesus in a few hundred hundred years later on. You see, the Jewish people are beginning to realize that perhaps in the same way that God is creator of all things, and we have that uh, time and time again in, in in this book of Jonah, that as well as being creator of all things and all people, perhaps... He is redeemer of all things and all people. Perhaps God is not just for the Jewish people after all, but in fact for the whole world. So what we have here in Jonah is a really important declaration on this journey towards an understanding of God being redeemer of all things and all people. So that's what happens here in Nineveh. Jonah preaches his fairly pathetic sermon. The people repent and turn to God, and God pours his forgiveness out upon them. Hallelujah! Right? Well, not for Jonah. Let's see what happens next. Back to Celia. Chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. 
I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it will be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Thanks, Celia. So, end of chapter three, God forgives, everyone should be happy, and then here at the beginning of chapter four, we get this extraordinary statement. Now to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Oh, Jonah, 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 Jonah. I mean, come on, mate. You're literally a kind of a living, walking, breathing parable of God's second chance. Why on earth do you not want to see that second chance given to others? Well, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Before that, I want to do a brief bit of structural analysis of this final chapter. Uh, It is, I hope, less boring than that sounds. Uh, Right back at the beginning of this talk, I gave you four sentences and asked for the link. Was it a cat I saw, A uh, uh, a nut for a jar of tuna, never odd or even, and Madam in Eden, I'm Adam. I'm sure that many of you will have worked out that they're all palindromes. That is to say, they read the same backwards as they do forward. And we almost have a palindrome here in the fourth chapter of Jonah. So, and this, this is uh, revealed through the direct speech that we get between Jonah and God. So we start off with Jonah saying 39 words to God. Then God replies with three. Jonah says three. God says another five. Jonah says another five. And then God concludes with another 39 words. So we've got 39, three, three, five, five, and 39. It's not quite a palindrome, but I think the author's trying to do something similar. And I think what he's doing is using this rhetorical device to take us on a bit of a journey through this chapter. So we start with Jonah's 39 words, which are declaring who God is. Now, he's doing it in a very sneering uh, sort of a way. 
But then we kind of come down into the, the three, three, five, five discussions, which all revolve around this visual image that God has given Jonah about this plant that grows up to protect him uh, from the hot sun, but which then God takes away. Jonah gets really angry, and then God says to him, well, look, you know, you're angry that I've destroyed that plant. You've done nothing to love or nurture or create that plant that plant, how much more do you think I don't want to destroy all these people who I created and who I loved and who I tended? And so we rise back up then to God explaining why the declaration that Jonah made about him at the beginning is so true. So let's have a look at that then. So Jonah says, God, I knew that you were going to be like this. You, you, oh, you're so annoying, God, because you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Now, what Jonah is doing there is he's actually quoting God's own words back at him. He's quoting from Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, Moses is going up a mountain for the, for the second time to meet with God. He's already received the Ten Commandments, but the tablets those Ten Commandments on were smashed up. So he's got some new tablets, which he's taking back up the mountain for the second draft, as it were. And whilst he's up there, uh, God meets with him and speaks with him. And God makes the very same self-declaration that Jonah just repeats. So God says, I'm the Lord, the Lord. God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. So this is what God says about himself. And then right the way throughout the Jewish Bible, we get the people of God, the Israelites, repeating this phrase over and over again, including uh, in Psalm 103, which we, which we read as our responses earlier on in the service. So this, is, this phrase is who God declares himself to be, and it's, it's who the Jewish people declare God to be. And yet here, Jonah is sneering at it, using it against God. Why? Well, because Jonah is pretty happy to receive this for himself. He's not so chuffed with God being gracious and compassionate and loving to others. So why then? What are the reasons that Jonah feels like this? Well, here's three possible ones. Perhaps firstly, Jonah is embarrassed and upset that God hasn't done what he, Jonah, thought he was going to do. I don't know about you, but I can feel like that sometimes myself. If, If God seems to be working in ways that I don't think are right, I can get pretty upset and cross with him. There's perhaps a lesson for us to learn that God's ways are not our ways. He is above and beyond, and that he will surprise us with the depth of his grace, compassion, and love. Secondly, I suspect that Jonah didn't think that Nineveh deserved God's grace. Nineveh was a bad city filled with bad people doing bad things. Somewhere it's understandable that Jonah thinks they don't deserve God's grace, compassion, and love. I think probably there's a hard truth for us to bear in this too. There may well be people in our lives who we don't think are deserving of God's forgiveness, of God's grace, compassion, and love. The truth is, of course, they don't. None of us do. And yet, God chooses to pour his forgiveness out upon us. His love, which passes all understanding, is available to all who seek him. That's particularly hard for for those of us who maybe have been profoundly hurt by someone or by a group of people. 
to acknowledge that God's love can stretch as deep and as far and as wide even as them. And yet that is the truth being revealed in this passage here. And then the third thing, perhaps, is that Jonah thinks, well, actually, the Ninevites aren't the right sort of people to receive God's grace, compassion, and love. They're not Jews. They didn't share his tradition. They didn't say or do the right things. And yet, God's love and forgiveness was available to them. Now, it's easy for us to look back at Jonah and, and think, oh, Jonah, you really should have realized But he was embedded within his own particular tradition, which thought that that God's love was only available to the people he thought it was available to. It may be that there's something in that for us too. It's easy for us to get caught up in our own little narrow traditions and think that people have to act in just the right ways that we think are the right ways for them to act. And yet maybe we need to become more aware that God's grace, compassion and love are available to all people to anyone who will turn to him. And that really is the main thrust of this whole book. That phrase, I hope, will reverberate around our, around our brains this week. The Lord is, gr- is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Abounding in love. A love greater than we can possibly imagine. A love deeper than the depths of the sea. A love wider than the breadth of the whole earth. A love that is all-consuming and all-powerful. A love that is beyond our understanding. God is love. Along the way, we've picked up all sorts of other themes Themes of calling, themes of running, themes of drowning in despair, themes of God being with us even when we can't recognize him, themes of second chances and repentance. But overall, what I think the author of Jonah is trying to remind us of is that God is love. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through this beautiful little book. I've got to say, I've had a whale of a time. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.